0: Let's continue our worship by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 48 this morning. Genesis chapter 48. And as it's appropriate, I'd like to wish all of you a happy Father's Day. I know for some this is indeed a happy day. Um, For some, it's anything but that. Maybe your father's not around. Uh, Maybe he is, and you just won't be celebrating this day with him. I recognize that the sentiment of a day like today doesn't always fit everyone. But it's interesting, though, that we find ourselves in Genesis 48 on this particular day, this holiday. I have been preaching for almost 17 years now, and I've never preached a Father's Day message. Uh, I'm not one to typically chase uh, holidays and headlines, but from time to time I will. Easter, Christmas, you can count on that. And then certain headlines, of course, we just need to speak to the chaos of the moment. And yet, in God's providence today, I will actually be preaching for the first time in my 17 years of doing this, a Father's Day message without planning to do so. It's inherently cooked into the text. I mean, the providence of God to be in this particular place on this particular day. I couldn't have scheduled it this way. I didn't try to work it out this way. And yet, it is indeed what's in the text. Look at the first two verses to see why I say that. Genesis 48 after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. Well, Paul's there. Don't worry. We'll read the rest of it. But what we have here is actually a text that is going to kick off an extended series on intergenerational impact. (laughs) There's a precursor to this, and that is Jacob making his funeral arrangements. You read through chapter 48, and you read through chapter 49, and he's going to pour some stuff directly into his children and his grandchildren. And then Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to close this section out with more funeral preparations. There's a nice bracket here of really handing off the baton of blessing from one generation to another with intention that it would continue successively. And this shouldn't surprise us, because after all, this is the plan that has been unveiled in the book of Genesis to this point. Sometimes we can see uh, the family and intergenerational impact as maybe like a new and novel and creative idea. People talk about family ministries, but I think we need to understand that from the very beginning, God actually intended to restore blessing to the world through a family. Remember when it all went wrong? A great world went wrong through man's rebellion, and then the first sign of hope that we have is in Genesis chapter 3, where God tells the serpent, actually, that there would be a seed, an offspring who would come And crush his head. So we read the rest of the book of Genesis wondering about this offspring, this lineage, this family, if you will. And we start to see this line. You ever wonder why Genesis seems so concerned with genealogies? I mean, you get to it and you yawn and you think, bah, who cares about this? (laughs) Obviously, God does, because He intended to restore blessing to the world through a family. And so it traces this family line from. Eve, down all the way through, a man named Lamech. Lamech, his big contribution to society is birthing a child by the name of Abram, later to be Abraham, and God tells this Abraham that through him the entire world would be restored to blessing. Abraham's about to die, but he has a son, And then Genesis starts this new section called the Generations of Isaac. (laughs) And guess what the story is there? Through Isaac and his family and his lineage, there would actually be restored blessing to the world. That's the next major section in Genesis. And then the Isaac story comes to a close. It uh, features prominently uh, Jacob, who we studied a lot of. And guess what the next and final major section in the book of Genesis is? These are the generations of the book of Jacob. The generations of Jacob. And guess what Jacob's story is about? God working through this man's family to restore blessing to the world. We initially called the study on the book of Genesis origins. (laughs) If I could go back and do it over again, I would change it to blessing. This thing's about blessing. It's about blessing, being restored to the world, God's plan to return the world back to the way that it should be. And his primary way of doing that would be through a specially chosen family, passing on this special blessing from generation to generation until a special nation itself would be created. And that is what we have here as we come to the end of the book. It's too long to cover in one message, chapter 48 and 49, But we're going to look at the first half of how God is passing on this blessing to the next generation. And I think what we'll find here is going to be especially relevant for all of us, whether we're fathers or not, because every person in this room should be interested in seeing God's blessing extend beyond themselves to others. (laughs) We want future generations to be impacted by the gospel should Jesus continue to delay his return. And so in light of that, we need to know, though, exactly what we're passing on. If there is a baton to be handed off, if the blessing of God needs to be extended to the next generation, what then does this blessing look like? Because we tend to have our own definition of blessing. We see some features of God's blessing, this baton of blessing that needs to go to the next generation in this particular text in Genesis 48, three features in particular if you'd like to take notes, I'd give you these three words to organize your thoughts. This blessing, this blessing here that's being passed on is marked by inclusion, inversion, and expectation. Inclusion, inversion, and expectation. I'll define each of those in a moment as we make it through. But you'll see it clearly. First, we'll see that the blessing is marked by inclusion. And we notice that in verses 1 through 7. We've already read verses 1 and 2, but let me read for you uh, the remainder. Verse 3, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for a possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem this is a tender moment. It's an emotional moment. What we have here in this text is a man who is literally moments away from dying. Joseph here by this point is middle-aged. He's a busy professional if we were to try to contextualize this for our own day. I mean, after all, he is the vizier of Egypt. He's the dude in charge. He has a pressing political office and he has a global famine on his hands. In fact, he's so busy that the text even indicates to us that he's not even able that much to keep up with his father, because it says that someone had to come tell him that his father was ill. This is actually the first time in the Bible that we see the word illness being used. He's ill, he's weak, he's near the point of death. So, as soon as Jacob hears this, naturally he decides to go and visit his father for this last time, and along with him he brings his two sons. Now, when you look at paintings of this as depicted in the past, you'll think of two little babies, but more than likely these kids are adolescents by this time if we do the math right. And so they're coming to hear the final words of their grandfather. And it's even that tender moment where it even says in verse 2 that Jacob is told by his attendant that His son is here, and notice that it says that he summoned all of his strength just to sit up in his bed. If you've ever visited an elderly grandparent, you know this scene. You know how this functions. You know how this works. And so Jacob is ready He's ready to pass the baton. He's, he's giving every ounce of energy that he has in this moment. And yet in the moment, because his eyesight is so poor, and because the attendant only told him that Joseph was present, he speaks to Joseph as if the grandchildren aren't even in the room. He, he doesn't even know exactly who's present. And you notice how he speaks to Joseph. As any old man would, he reminisces on the past and where does Joseph's or excuse me Jacob's mind first take him? It takes him back to that time where God had personally appeared to him and affirmed the promise that through him there would be a special multitude of people that God would use to restore blessing to the world. If you go back and look at the previous incident here and compare it with what Jacob says, he's actually had more time to think on it, and he changes a few of the words around and kind of update the meaning. God told him that he needed to be fruitful and multiply, and yet Jacob here says, God will make me fruitful and will multiply me. God told Jacob back in 37 that he would give him a land And here he calls it not just a land, but a permanent possession. He's had some time to ruminate over these promises, to reflect on how God was going to be working in him, and he sees this as bigger than anything he ever could have possibly imagined originally. And this is what he does. This is where things get interesting. And this should shock you a little bit. He knows that he has inherently this special blessing from God, and he wants to include two more people on the direct impartation of this blessing. Those two people being his foreign-born grandchildren. Now, we know that Joseph has over 50 grandchildren by this point. We just read a genealogy or a listing of names just a couple chapters back. But in this particular point... What you're going to notice is the two that he never spent any time with, the two that were born to this priestess daughter in Egypt, he actually is going to graciously include in his direct lineage. They will not be like second generation, they will be first generation recipients of the special divine blessings that God himself has given him. This is huge. This is countercultural. This didn't really make any sense. I mean, there were instances in the ancient Near East where people would adopt descendants within their own family. You see an example of that in the book of Ruth. But normally, it was because the situation required it. Here, he just out of his own grace and kindness says, hey, I know these children have been distant from me, but I actually want them to be in the will, if you will. It'd be like if, if my grandfather, in his death, had left his three sons the inheritance. But decided instead of giving the youngest son the direct inheritance, he says, you know what, I'm actually not going to give you anything, I'm just going to give everything to your children. He elevates them from, again, second generation to first generation recipients and what we see here about God's grace and his blessing as it's being extended, is Joseph is showing us that it, I mean, Jacob is showing us that it is inclusive. He is trying to include those who would not naturally benefit from this directly. And so it's a wonderful picture of God's grace to us. I mean we even heard that in the baptism testimonies today. It was wonderful. In both Adam and Amanda's testimony, I picked up on this theme in which Amanda was talking about she didn't have the, the kind of father that she thought she needed as a child, and yet she knew that she would have a heavenly father, and God used that to bring her to faith in himself. And then Adam and his references Romans chapter 8, where it talks about God choosing us to make us part of his children, the firstborn among many brethren his special adoption into his family. I mean, this is like a foreshadowing of God's inclusive grace to us. You think of a day like today and you could be like all despondent and down over the type of upbringing that you may have had and yet it is just a subtle reminder that the way God's grace works, the way his blessings extend, they are inclusive and they normally include people who would otherwise be left out. That is a great reminder. When we're passing on, by the way, this blessing from one generation to the next, we need to keep in mind, and our children and our grandchildren desperately need to know that God's grace includes those who would be otherwise left out. It's a great reminder. Joseph, excuse me, Jacob is going to do a little more than that here, though. He's not just going to show that this is a blessing of inclusion but there's something that's even more prominent in the text. He's going to go through great trouble to show that this blessing that's being passed on is also a blessing of inversion. Inversion. Inversion is when you just take something and you change the order around. And Joseph is going to go to great lengths to change the order around here. I want you to notice it for yourself as we read Verses 8 and 9, and I'll walk you through the story. Let's read these two verses first to set the context. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now remember, the guy is blind as a bat. He can't see. But at some point, he recognizes that there are two other individuals in the room. And so he says, "Who, who else is here? And I love the way that Joseph responds. Fathers, this is a great way that you could ever respond if somebody asks you who your children are. Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. I don't want to like sermonize every point in the text, but it is a great point to remember. God has given me them. They're from God. My children from God. Joseph recognizes this to his father. And notice what his father does. The verse continues, and he said, bring them to me, please. That I may bless them, that I may bless them, I think that one of the most misused and misunderstood uh, words in the Christianese language is blessing. I mean, think about the most dominant way that it's used. When someone sneezes, (laughs) we just instinctually say, bless you, and nobody has a clue why. And by the way, don't send me any Snopes reports that says why. I know that we don't know why. Bless you. We just say it. does it come from the Bible. We just say it. But blessing, blessing in the Bible means a myriad of things. It could be used in a ton of different ways. But here in the Old Testament, it's so unique. It's so interesting. When you read the early accounts of the patriarchs, it becomes clear that blessing is a gift that is closely akin to the New Testament gift of prophecy. It's something supernatural. It is a miraculous gift, if you will. It isn't just saying like, hey, hope you have a good day. When one of the patriarchs pronounces a blessing, as God's special chosen representatives of the nation that He's trying to create, when one of God's patriarchs pronounces a blessing, it is effectual. Through the words said and the actions performed, like the future is in part determined. If I were to give like a modern parallel to this, and much weaker of course, it would be that of prayer. We know that God is sovereign. He works in whatever way that He pleases, and yet He has sovereignly chosen to use the means of prayer to bring about His divinely appointed ends, right? That's why we pray. He picked a means by which to work His end. Guess what the means that He chose to use in the Old Testament was? Blessing. He would entrust Abraham and Isaac and Jacob with this special capacity to speak stuff into existence about the good of the coming nation. That's why, by the way, back in the story with Isaac, you remember that? The reason why Esau was so bummed because he was like, you know, can you change it? Do you have a blessing for me? And he's like, no, I've already spoken the blessing, but I can say another one for you. We're thinking, oh, he could just say oops and try over again. No, it was irrevocable. It was concrete as soon as it was said. And so what's happening here is Joseph is going to pronounce one of these blessings. He's going to be, God is going to use him to kind of chart the course for history about the future of these coming tribes, and he's going to do it in two ways. One is through what he says, and the other is through what he does, because it's a ceremony. There's things to be said, and there's stuff to be done. And I want you to notice both of these Notice how Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob, I know I keep mixing it up, but look, you come do it better. (laughs) What he does here is he's going to intentionally invert this through what he says and what he does. Let's first look at what he does. This is interesting. Verses 17, or excuse me, let's start with verses 10 through 14. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees. So it's like they were leaning on his knees when he was giving them this hug. Joseph removes them. Joseph bows himself as the representative of the family with his face to the earth, as if in the posture to receive this blessing on behalf of his children. Verse 13 says, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Now, hang with it. It's, It's tough. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Now, Paul's here. This, this, the text has given you a lot of detail on what he's doing here, and five different times it's going to mention his right hand and his left hand, and you're trying to think, all right, whose right hand, whose left hand, which way? <laughs> so, let's do a reenactment, all right? So, what Joseph does here is he actually takes his two adolescent sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is the older one, Okay, so let's say that Manasseh's on this side, you've got Ephraim on this side, so I'm going to like even make them like short and tall, let's just pretend that it was that way. So you've got Ephraim and Manasseh, and what he's going to do is he's actually going to place them one here and the other here, so that when his aged dad is reaching out to pronounce the blessing, He's supposed to put his right hand on the older one and his left hand on the younger one because the right hand in that culture represented the the hand of strength, the hand of prominence. It would mean that even though he was going to say the same things, whoever's hand was on the right side or whoever was receiving that aspect of his touch would be the superior, the dominant one. So Joseph is trying to orchestrate this for his dad. He knows that he's blind as a bat. And so he says, all right, I'm going to put the older one over here. I'm going to put the younger one over here so that as he's facing this way, he can just naturally bless these boys. And what the text is telling us is that what Jacob actually does is he crosses his hands and he switches it up anyway. And he doesn't even give Joseph any time to object because What happens here, even though Joseph tried to present it in the right way, immediately he's off to the races, and now we transition to what he says. We saw what he does. It's a big cultural faux pas for sure. You weren't supposed to put the right hand on the younger son. But now notice what he says. This is beautiful, by the way. Verse 15, and he blessed Joseph. Notice that. It says he blessed Joseph even though he's touching his two boys. There is no separation between them. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Is this not beautiful, I'm telling you? Like, like if, if I am on my deathbed and my grandchildren are around, I hope I say something this God-centered and wise. He is giving God the credit for everything that's going to happen in these boys' life. Even though he may be laying his hands on them, he is clearly recognizing that anything good that will happen to them will happen because of the God who has been good to him. Particularly, it says, the God before whom his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The one with whom they were in great relationship is basically what he's saying. He said, just as he was in great relationship with them, so also I'm trusting that you'll be in great relationship with him. And then the second line, I love this one, the one who has been my shepherd. <laughs> we always think of Psalm 23 in that, but this is way before Psalm 23. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. You know what shepherds do, right? Shepherds, they actually like protect from evil and they provide good. I mean, he's thinking of all those evil situations that he was in when he was actually exiled by his family, when he was manipulated by his father-in-law, when he was threatened by his brother, when he was threatened by the foreign nations, when he faced that famine, like all those times that God had protected him in that. And then those good things. The way that God had provided a family for him. The way that God had provided riches for him. The way that God had protected him. The way that God had restored him to his son. All of those things he's attributing to this shepherd. He's saying, as I'm imparting this blessing, it's not coming from me. It's coming from the God who had fellowship with my fathers. It's coming from the God who has been my shepherd. And then there's this interesting one. Those of you who are close Bible students would love to geek out on something like this. Where it says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The angel? This all seems parallel. Is God an angel? (laughs) Well, if you want to get your theology right, no, God is not an angel. Angels are created beings. And yet we've already seen in the book of Genesis up to this point, this special figure who keeps showing up, who isn't just among angels, plural, but the angel, often called the angel of the Lord or the angel of God. Joseph had special experience with angels, by the way. There's two different instances in which he knew that God worked through these special messengers to help keep him safe. The first was when he went to Luz, or Bethel, and he saw the angels going up and down, and in that context, God promised to bless him. The second time that he ran into angels, generally, was when he was being threatened by his father-in-law, and it's a very obscure verse in Genesis, but it's there, we covered it, don't worry, where it talks about this place, this camp called Mahanaim, which is the place of two camps because Joseph saw there a whole army of angels. So Joseph, I mean, I mean he's, Jacob, excuse me, is uniquely aware of angelic presence. But he doesn't refer to the angels, plural here. He refers to the angel who has redeemed him from all evil. What specifically is he talking about? Do you remember that particular instance in which he was about to face his brother for the first time and he's thinking that his brother's going to eliminate him? And as he's praying and wrestling in prayer, he ends up wrestling with an individual in the dark who is more than just an angel. It is the angel of the Lord. It was at that time, through that struggle, that he recognized that there was one entity who was representing God on this earth who was actually bringing to pass all the things that God had already promised him. It is there that his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, God's fighter. It was there in contact with the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of what we would know from reading the rest of the New Testament, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ that God was redeeming him from all evil. The person of Christ at work, even in the Old Testament. He's saying, he didn't know it fully, but whatever blessing I'm passing on to you, it is from this God and this angel. (laughs) And this is what he says, bless the boys. Bless the boys. The, the blessing, by the way, is sometimes it's easier to learn something by what its opposite is. You know what the opposite is? It's curse. The context of Genesis, the struggle, the problem, if you will, that the, the, the people need to overcome is the curse from Genesis chapter 3. Blessing is the opposite of that. (laughs) Blessing is the restoration of the way that God intended it to be. He's saying, through these boys, restore this world back to the way that it needs to be. Bless them. May, May they be called by my name. May everything that I've experienced, especially of God, may they know the same thing. But keep something in mind. How are his hands? He is specifically here saying this with the intention that the oldest son would play a secondary role and that the youngest son would play a primary role in this experience of blessing. And I want you to know that Joseph is not happy about it. He lets them get these few lines out, and I don't know if he interrupts the ceremony that's going on or what, but I want you to notice it in your text. And I don't do this often, but I'm going to like, do a little like, updating of a uh, translation for you so you can really feel what's happening here. Look at verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. So he's thinking, no, 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 this can't happen. But look at that phrase, it displeased him. In Hebrew, it literally reads, it was evil to him. (laughs) It appeared evil to him. Rob evil, bad, morally bad, morally wrong. This was an outrage to him. Like, there is no way on earth that this could happen. This was not the way it was. I mean, the way things worked in that culture, whether it be Canaanite culture or Egyptian culture, is everybody knew that there was a certain order, and in that certain order, the older were supposed to get the primary blessing, the younger would get the secondary blessing. You just don't do it that way. And that's what he's telling his father. like, No, 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 you can't do this. And he physically tries to move his hands. And then notice what Jacob says in response to this. Verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, with his hands still where they were, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, may God make you as, and notice the name order here, Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The name order matters. You could imagine this even in a modern context. When you have a a book that's going to be published, and it has multiple authors. Whose name gets listed first? It's not alphabetical. It's whoever makes the greatest contribution to the work. Or if you've ever gone to a law firm, and they normally have like 12 names associated with it, whose name is first? The founding partner, the initiator. Here, it is clear in what he says and in what he does that the younger one's going to play the prominent role in this future. And as you see this play out, by the way, in the nation of Israel, this is exactly what happens. The tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are going to become dominant in the nation of Israel. Both of them will be blessed in a unique way compelled, compared to their other counterparts. In fact, there will be one point in Israel's history where Ephraim is so dominant that it will be used as shorthand for the nation of Israel as a whole. At least for a while. So what he does here is effective. Effective. But what I want you to see is that he's doing something intentional. He's trying to teach his son. He's trying to teach these grandsons. He's trying to teach future generations that God's blessing is often inverted. God doesn't operate the way that you expect him to. You may have culturally preconditioned ideas of how you think God should be working and passing on blessing in this world. And what this text is reminding you is, no, he's doing it this way on purpose. We see God cross His hands all the time, and we're like, no, Lord, no, what are you doing? I can't believe you're doing it that way. There's no, this is not the way that blessing works. And what the text is reminding us is, no, this is often the way that God works. He often works in ways that define your and my puny expectations of Him. I mean, think about what's happened to the nation of Israel up to this point. How has He worked so far? Why did He pick Abraham? why did he pick Abraham? Because he was such an awesome guy? No, he was a moon worshiper from Ur. He picked him out of the blue. By his sovereign grace, he chose Abraham, and then he said, I'm going to bless you. And what about his son? Did he work in the normal, culturally expected way with Isaac? No, because Isaac didn't even exist when he was supposed to. I mean, it was a barren womb, and an old man, and they could not have children, and then God, by some miracle, like in this counterintuitive way, finally sends Isaac at the right time. And you know how he passes on the blessing to Isaac? Another crazy way. He takes him up to the top of a mountain, and he tells him to offer his son Isaac up. (laughs) And you're thinking, man, that's the right hand on the wrong head. You know what the text is telling you? Be quiet. God knows exactly what he's doing. This is the way that his blessing works. He works in ways that defy your puny expectations. Well, What about Jacob? Why was Jacob, I mean, I'm talking about the guy here who's passing on the blessing. Why did he get the blessing? After all, he was the younger, right? Esau was the older. Was it because Jacob was such a stand-up guy? No, absolutely not. God chose from the womb that Jacob would be the prominent one. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to make a statement about the way that he does things. It is not because of our own efforts. It is not because of what a culture thinks we deserve. It is because of God's sovereign grace that we experience blessing. That's how God's worked with Israel. That is exactly what he is doing here. He is saying, remember this, God often will work in ways that will defy your expectations, and it is good. That's how he worked with Israel the nation of Israel. And did he work any differently in the true Israel? The ultimate seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, did you think about how that thing went down? You have 400 years of nothing. You don't hear a peep divinely from the Scriptures. There's no prophetic revelation. And then all of a sudden, out of a blue, you've got this young teenage girl who is embroiled in some pretty heinous circumstances because, like, she could have been stoned. She's perceived to be an adulteress by the community because of the miraculous way that God chose to work. And nevertheless, God sent His Son into that situation to this peasant girl who was going to be accused of being an adulteress. To some no name legal custodian named Joseph to grow up in this podunk holler town named Nazareth, and like that's where the Son of God, the Messiah who's gonna rule the world, is gonna come from? And yet that was his plan. And he would grow up for 30 years in utter obscurity. And then when he would step on the scene, he would dominate. I mean, he would dominate demons, he would dominate disease, he would dominate nature. And yet even though that was the case, this king would allow himself to be persecuted at the hands of an unjust trial, suffer, bleed, and die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and then rise again three days later. And that seems victorious, but you would think, okay, if he was really going to do it the right way, if he was going to put the right hand on the right guy and the left hand on the left guy, Jesus just would have like taken over right there. And what'd he do? He only showed up physically to 500 people. (laughs) And then he ascended into heaven and said that he would come back. Like, why didn't he just, like, set it up right there? We're thinking, no, my Lord, no, no, it can't be done this way. Why don't you just go ahead and do it now? And yet we would remember that God's blessing is inversive. He is working in ways that are different than we could ever imagine. And why he does that, I do not know, outside of the fact that he maybe doesn't appreciate us trying to be backseat drivers. I think it's a subtle, and I say this respectfully, sit there, shut up, let me drive. You ever have your kids like, try to tell you how to drive? I wish my kids were in here today. They're in there. They wanted me to have a happy Father's Day, they said, so that's why they're in that, that room. <laughs> But really, I've got a four-year-old daughter who constantly tries to tell me how to drive. And I'm thinking, I know, my child, I know. (laughs) I know where I'm going. I know how to get to the church. (laughs) And yet here we are, it sounds funny, but here we are just barking from the back seat all the time. No, my Lord, no. What in the world are you doing? Why are things working this way? Why is the political situation this way? Why is the health global health situation this way? Why did my family life turn out this way? Why did you take my loved one this way? Why do I struggle with sin this way? Paul gives us this interpretation in the text that we read earlier. And maybe you noticed it. Maybe you're seeing now. Why we read First Corinthians chapter one, verses eighteen to thirty-one. But when God crosses his right hand with his left, when he passes on these inversive blessings, I think it's good for us to remember the words of the Apostle Paul as he's trying to correct the Corinthians who thought that there was a better way to establish a ministry. And Paul is arguing, no, this foolish message of the gospel is actually the way that God's chosen. And listen to what he says, and I want to read it in its entirety again. Why are we doing this? For verse 18, the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that... No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see the parallel? Sit back, shut up, let me drive. I will get the credit for this. Your plans will not get the job done. I will cross my hands wherever I please. The blessing of God does not proceed according to the expectations that you or I set for it. And so, it is a blessing of inclusion. It is a blessing of inversion. And we end with the last two verses of the chapter. It is a blessing of expectation. It is a blessing of expectation. Genesis 48, and this could seem like a couple of throwaway verses, but we believe every word is inspired, and I think you'll see the relevance of this. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. <laughs> it almost seems like an aside, like, oh, by the way, I got this piece of property for you just in case you want it. But think about what's going on here. I'm going to use a southern phrase with you for a moment. Joseph is uh, he's eating, as we would say, high on the hog right now. I mean, he's got it going pretty well. He's second in command of a major world superpower. He's pretty comfortable where he's at. He's going to make all the money that he needs. He's got all the prominence that he needs. I mean, if there's anything that you would think about Joseph is like, hey, I've got it good, let's just park it here. But what does his father do? In this final moment, he's going to intentionally adjust his expectations from the here and now to the not yet. Yet. He's going to remind his son that this may seem like your home, but it is not. The place that God has promised us, that eternal possession I was speaking of, is up north somewhere, and you and your seed will enjoy it one day. Joseph, don't get content here. Look ahead to something still to come, this promise of future land. It's interesting, when you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you have what is called the hall of faith, right? Not the hall of fame, the hall of faith. Jacob's in the hall of faith. But he's not in there, like when it counts how he believed in the Lord in such a special way. It's not in there for that time that like, he was wrestling with the angel. It's not in there you know, for that time where like, he braved it and went up to Padan Aram on his own. You know what it mentions? Like The supreme expression of J- Jacob's faith mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 is this very incident. It says, when he blessed his children and he leaned over his staff. And we think when we read that in Hebrews 11, like, what in the world? What's so faithful about this? You know what's so faithful about it? It's because Jacob fully expected everything he said to totally come true. He knew that things were decent for them in Egypt, but he knew that the best was yet to come. He laid his hands on those boys in faith, knowing that there was an eternal possession that was better than Egypt. And I know I mentioned it last week, but it's worth mentioning again. Friends, if you hate the way things seem in this world, good, good. You're normal. I think for the last 6 months God has finally let us feel the way we're supposed to feel about this world. When the economy is firing on all cylinders and everybody's healthy, we start like tricking ourselves into thinking like, "Oh, it's pretty good here." And then when all hell breaks loose, we're like, "Man, what's happening?" That's how you should feel. What's happening? You know what's happening? This world is experiencing birth pains for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for something better. The blessing that we pass on to the next generation isn't just about inclusion, it isn't just about inversion, it's also about expectation. I want to ask you this practically with your children, with your grandchildren, with people who look up to you, do they find that your ultimate hope is in the here and now or the not yet? I mean, are you walking around your home in the days, or are your children seeing you wringing your hands and fretting and moaning about the current world situation, or are they actually hearing you verbalize confidence that Jesus is on his way back and he will perfectly rule this world one day? I have a feeling that just in recent days, and I know it's been hard, it's probably been more of the latter than the former. I mean, the former than the latter. this is the blessing that we pass on. And what I hope you notice about this is that the blessing of God, this baton that goes from one generation to another, uh, it's different. It's weird. It's unexpected. It defies your expectations. Is anybody in here like moving? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) A horrible experience. It's horrible for everybody especially the people that you invite to help you move keep that in mind and you want to know what makes it worse when you didn't put stuff in boxes you ever shown up to one of those moving events where they're like hey we've got pizza but I didn't put a thing in a box (laughs) oh it's so bad but we know that, you know, it's, it's one of the frustrating parts about moving. We just want to throw the junk in a trunk and move on to the next place, and yet there's this just inevitable packaging of stuff. It just takes forever. It takes longer than the move itself. And, and we like things that fit into the boxes that we find at the grocery store or the boxes that some of us buy from the U-Haul store. Like, you know, there's a big one, there's a large one, there's a small one. I mean, like, you know, we want them to fit. But it doesn't matter how hard we try there's not a box for everything. Not everything fits those expectations that we have. And here's what's going to happen. Even if it was the best moving party ever, at some point, random junk is going to get put in the truck all obtuse and weird. Some things just don't fit. They don't fit in the box. I think that's a wonderful picture of the blessing of God. We expect it to fit in this manageable, logical category. Like, all right, it's going to work this way at this time. I, I, I'm going to see it unfold in, in these particular expressions. And yet it's all hanging out. <laughs> we just can't contain it. It's so much bigger. It includes people that we didn't expect to be included. It reverses the order on things that we didn't expect to, like, to, to, to unfold in that way. And then sometimes like you want it to be good now, but it's not good now. It's going to be good to come. This is what we're passing on to the next generation. It's something that is different. It's something that is countercultural. It is something that is otherworldly. And friends, this is our responsibility. As part of this extended family of God now in Christ, it is still His intention for us to have intergenerational impact, to still be saying this message not just from our deathbed, but before we even get up to that point, that God intends to bless through the generations to come. I found great encouragement in much of the bad news this week from an article that Mark sent me from Kevin DeYoung in which he was lamenting... this theologian, this pastor, if you don't know his name, look it up, I trust him. This theologian is lamenting the Supreme Court decision for Monday. So on top of all the other bad news, just in case you didn't pick up on it, the Supreme Court ruled on Monday that sex is now can be defined by the individual, by their orientation or by their own identification. But translated, <laughs> um, gender is meaningless for the future. It's not an identifiable category, so there will be no men's or women's sports. It's all just going to be a mix. And don't worry, it's going to have bigger impacts, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. But it's a sad decision because I know many people who voted for Donald Trump thinking like, man, you know what? He's going to get some conservative Supreme Court justices on this thing, and like decisions like this, man, they're going to go our way. We're going to win the culture war. <laughs> uh, friends, as Christians, we were soundly defeated this week. That is not, when you were hoping that Neil Goresh got on the Supreme Court, that is not the decision that you were counting on him to make, I tell you. But guess what? We're losing the culture war. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Christians aren't the dominant figure in this culture that we thought we would be. So DeYoung is commenting on that, and you know what he says, and I love this, He said, don't give up on the culture. Keep trying to vote conservatively. Keep trying to write your senators and your legislators. Keep trying to have impact in your community. Keep doing that. We'll keep trying. But at the same time, recognize that God actually has a better strategy for winning long-term. And this is where it got interesting. (laughs) He said, if you recognize that in this modern day where abortion is prevalent, and people think that sex is only for pleasure, not for the propagation of peoples, the religious people are going to win the day because they're going to have more kids. They're going to be the only people that are like producing offspring. So you go a generation from now, and like most people won't be having children, but people who like have some religious sensibility about them will be trying to have children. And so what DeYoung says is, hey, have a bunch of kids and disciple them, and you're going to outnumber them in the future. This is the way he says that. I thought this was great. He says, Here's a culture war strategy conservative Christians should get behind. Have more children and disciple them like crazy. Strongly consider having more children than you think you can handle. As I've said before, um, we won't be able to, the world won't be able to sustain this in the future. He says, The basic reason countries stop having children is because they've come to see offspring as a liability rather than a source of hope. But as Christians, we know better. Do you want to rebel against the status quo? Do you want people to ask you for a reason of the hope that is in you? Tote your brood of children through Target. (laughs) There is almost nothing more countercultural than having more children. And once we have those children, there's almost nothing more important than catechizing them in the faith, developing their moral framework, and preparing them to be deeply compassionate lovers of God and lovers of people and relentlessly biblical lovers of truth. (laughs) You know what the text is speaking to here? Generational impact is talking about like, hey, I, I may not be able to control the Canaanites. I may not be able to control all of Egyptian culture, but here's what I can control, my children and my grandchildren, and I want them to know the blessing of God and how it works. There's a strategy, and I pray that we would be a church that effectively passes on this baton of blessing. Listen, I recognize that not all of you are at childbearing stage. That's not the point of the message. You have children, have children. Wonderful. If you can't, God knows. If you're beyond that, okay. But guess what? There still is a generation coming up within our sphere of influence in this church that we can have immediate impact on. They're represented in the children's classes that will start in a couple weeks. They are represented in the student ministry that meets here regularly, and we all can have him back on that generation. The primary way we will do that is as parents and as grandparents, but the secondary way in which we do that is by teaching classes to these kids, reaching out to disciple some of these teenagers, some of these young adults. Like, this is the next generation. We are passing on an understanding of God's blessing. You say, so how do you do that? One, you must accept the blessing of God in Jesus Christ. you want generational impact? you have to repent of your sin and rely in Jesus Christ alone. Internalize those blessings for yourself. You cannot give away what you do not have and so if you 're here this morning and you 're worried about the way the world's going, and you want to see the Lord work in great ways in the future, I would encourage you to consider your own heart first. Have, You turn from your sin. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone? But after we've accepted God's blessing, we advance God's blessing in intentional ways by trying to speak to the people that God has placed under our sphere of influence for the good of the gospel. Yes, that is catechizing your children and doing family devotions and talking to them. And having those conversations with your grandchildren, but it's also you teaching children's classes and helping out in the youth group and discipling other young people. Like, this is our effort. This is actually even the vision of the church. We're horrible at that kind of thing around here, announcing vision and mission and values and all that kind of thing. But the elders actually in recent days have updated the vision statement of the church to better reflect what we thought taught in the New Testament, and it is this. We envision that this church would raise up generations of God glorifying Christ followers. Don't you like that word, generations? Not just raising up God glorifying Christ followers, but generations of God glorifying Christ followers. If it's exactly into what we're wanting to do here, and so, friends, we must have a handle on the baton of blessing before we pass it off to the next generation. In every aspect of it. It's inclusion, it's expectation, and I think most relevantly for these days, it's inversion. The countercultural ways that God's blessing tends to operate. In light of that, let's pray and then let's sing of our sovereign God who does all things right. Let me pray for us. Father, give us help now as we seek in these days to pass along the baton of blessing to the next generation. May we grasp it for ourselves. May we hand it off in a way that others can take and run. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would save them, that you would convict them. Lord, for those who are looking to have more impact on the next generation, encourage them and help them. Honor yourself through this church in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.